Well, that song epitomizes the burden of my heart that really spawned this whole series that we're involved in right now, our identity, the identity crisis. Do we really know who we are, the bride of Christ, what that looks like, and making certain that we are ready that when the Lord Jesus returns, that he will find his church identifying with him accurately according to his word. So that really is the the burden of our hearts, um, our leadership hearts, and we're, br- we're drawing you into this series uh, to make certain that we ourselves are living out the true identity of the church that Jesus is building. And uh, so that's, that's our, our concern. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us together today. And Lord, as we um, embark on this uh, fifth in our series the series of the identity crisis, what it really means to belong, uh, what it really means to be the bride of Christ. I pray, O oh God, that you would instruct us from your word and that our hearts would be completely malleable, Father. Would we be open to the changes as we see the corrections that are necessary, that we might be the church that is your vision of church, that we might be the church that is described in your word that uh, the church that you are building is the church that we are, I pray, O God. And so, Father, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will um, take your word and uh, you will impress it upon our hearts that the application of it might change our lives, I pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, um, I figured the first Sunday back might be important to be just a tiny bit interactive. So I think most of you have probably seen the game show Family Feud, yes? Yes, Family Feud. So we're just going to play one small uh, Family Feud moment for you, and that is, um, I I was wondering what you would say is the number one uh, image that comes into your mind when you think of a school custodian. What paraphernalia do you think of when you think, number one, what would it be? Mop. Mop. Eh. (laughs) Sorry, Joel. Mustache. (laughs) I don't even know what sound. I don't even know what sound to do with that. Custodian, school custodian. Keys. Keys. They always have like a, a big dangling stack of keys. Keys are, are, are what, what grants somebody uh, responsibility and, and the, the uh, responsibility for entrance and, and, and exit and keeping people out and locking the doors and, and trust and, and all of that kind of thing. That's, keys are, are a big deal. That's what the custodian are. I, I, can, I remember the day that my dad, I was, I was uh, I think 17, my dad comes home from work and he hands me my own personal key to the family VW. 1969, cherry red, four on the floor, Volkswagen Beetle. I remember that day being given the key my own key. I didn't have to ask him anymore if I took the car. I had access to the car. It took only a matter of time for me to spin that baby out on the neighbor's lawn and take off from there. But 
that aside, that's the key. A key is responsibility. A key is given to someone for trust. A key unlocks things and locks things up. I have in my hands right now the keys to the kingdom of Calvary Baptist Church. Not many people have these. There may be, um, in terms of staff, there may be 14 people in this congregation have these keys. These are important things. One day, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he threw the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16? So I want to talk about the identity of the church in terms of the keys to the kingdom as key holders of the kingdom of heaven. And the responsibility and the trust that goes along with that and what that really means and what it looks like. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, or Messiah, anointed one, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This is the word of God. Um, we have studied over the last several weeks uh, certain identity markers of the church. And one of the things that we have discovered is that the church, as described in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, is those who accepted his message, in other words, Peter's message of the gospel, they were baptized and were added to the number that day. In other words, nothing in the early church, in the early church moment, the primitive church, nothing was artificially interfered at all with a discipleship pathway from salvation to membership. In fact, a person could be totally desperately lost in the morning and destined to hell, and by the evening, a full-fledged member of the church, just like that. And thousands of them were, as we, as we study the book of Acts. 3,000, in fact, the stress is on that day. Nothing artificially interfered with the discipleship pathway of a new believer, of a new follower of Christ. They responded to the message, they received the message, they were baptized, they were added to the church. And then they lived 
their lives like all the rest of us and sinned like all the rest of us and proved that they were authentic like all the rest of us or that they were not, that they were phonies. And so we want to look today in, as we relate to this issue of keys of the kingdom as to how Jesus has, a, has established a church-led mechanism for preserving the holiness of the church in light of the fact that those who come to know Christ scripturally and legitimately can be baptized that day and added to the church. That was the early church identity. It's who they were. A lot of people say, well, wait, wait a second. And over the years, there be, have been layers of, of structure and administration placed in these steps. Over the centuries, churches have said, well, okay, wait a second. You, you've responded to the message of the Lord. Well, I can't baptize you right now. <laughs> no, no, we've we got to look at you for a while. We've got to make sure you're really the real deal. Maybe, maybe we can baptize you in a few years. Maybe you go to a lot of classes, we could baptize you. And then you finally get yourself into the baptismal tank somehow, and you come out of the tank and say, well, membership? No, 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 we can't put you into membership just yet. You got to find out a lot more about us. You have to understand our doctrine and all of that kind of stuff, and, and, uh, and maybe you got to go to classes about that too, and years and years and years unfold, because we've decided over the years in our human constructs to somehow police the church with administration. That's not how we started. It's not how the primitive church began. Now, I'm not, I'm not entirely dissing all of administration and all of the things and all of the wisdom that's been gathered over the years, but I'm just pointing out to you that Jesus already put a mechanism in place to take care of the holiness of his church. And it's all tied up and wrapped up in this keys of the kingdom concept. He has given the church a responsibility. The church is the guardian and instrument of the kingdom as Wilkins says in his commentary, and the way in which the presence of the kingdom is made known. That's a sermon in itself. Right there, we are guardians, we are the instrument of the kingdom, and we are the way in which the presence of the kingdom is made known. Wherever you are, wherever God has placed you, you are the way in which the presence of the reality of the kingdom of heaven is demonstrated. Wherever your job is, wherever, what family you're placed in, that's, that's what you do, that's who you are. That's where you've been placed in life. But the church, as an assembly of professing believers, will gather within itself individuals who are baptized and members, but not really authentic believers. It will happen. It does happen. So what are the biblical practices then and the authority of the church 
in order to address the matter of unholy people attached to a holy church. I, I'm going to continue to make a big deal on the issue of holiness. I'm always going to make a big deal about that. It is the only place in the scriptures, the only thing in the scriptures, the only concept in the scriptures that is thrice noted as relating to God. It never says God is love, love, love. It never says God is grace, grace, grace. But it says say God is holy, holy, holy. That ought to catch our attention. It needs to catch our attention to how we live and how we administrate and organize ourselves as guardians of the church, given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So, um, with the time that we have this morning, and, and I, I knew this going in, I'm going to spend more time in a couple of areas, and I'm going to skip very quickly over a couple of others. I wanted to do the work personally myself, and I wanted to make sure that you had outlines of the work that I did personally myself, but... But forgive me for not digging deeply into everything that I've laid out for you today because it's just not possible. But I want to make sure we have a good, solid picture here. And so I want to look primarily at the keys of the kingdom so you know what that is. And I want to look primarily at what our responsibility is in terms of uh, maintaining holiness in the church as it relates to sin. So those are the two things that I want to look at. So first is this. The church has been authorized by Jesus... If you're still in Matthew 16, the church has been authorized by Jesus as uh, to be key holders to the courts of his kingdom. It, this is a picture, by the way, the keys, you'll find the, the key idea, the key illustration throughout the scriptures. You'll find it in the Old Testament, you'll find it in the, in the Gospels, and you'll find it in Revelation. The idea, of course, is this illustration of entrance and exclusion and authority, all illustrated by keys. Our identity is key holders in Isaiah 22, 22. And in the, again, and then Revelation 3, 7, it talks about the key of David. It's talking about entrance and exclusion and authority. In fact, in Revelation 3, 7, um, it talks there about Jesus having the key of David. And it says, what he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no man can open. This authority, when Jesus threw the keys of the kingdom to Peter, this authority is um, sweeping and summary. Now, keys of the kingdom of heaven, what, it's what J Jesus uh, unleashed at that moment was set in motion is that the church would be the, the agency of God on earth that would demonstrate the shattering of death. The gates of Hades cannot prevail. We are to our world a testimony that death has been defeated. We don't, we aren't people who live in abject fear of death like they do. This moment is, is really, really um, disturbing to me. Disturbing to me that believers are living with utter fear like pagans. The church's identity is those who are people who represent the shattering of death. 
death is no more. Death can be no more for those who love the Lord. And gates of hell will not prevail. The reality of death cannot overcome the church and the reality of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus sets up the contrast with the, the gates of hell versus the keys of the kingdom. We are the gatekeepers of the doors to life everlasting that shatters the fear of death entirely based on the powerful reality of Peter's confession here that you, Jesus, are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the life giver. This is the message. So the keys themselves, what what are the keys? The keys are the gospel. That's why Jesus said, you are Peter on this rock, the rock of your confession and this great rock at Caesarea Philippi, the very gates of hell, I will plant my church right from this place and death will not overcome my church, not ever. That's the message. And the, the keys are that gospel. And it opens access, that message, that key, the key of the truth of Jesus Christ as Messiah, as, as Savior, unlocks the door of life to those who receive and welcome the message through the truth preached. Ministry, the ministry of the keys is the proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. The gospel, in a gospel-confessing church, the doors to life swing wide open to those who receive the message, but... They swing closed to those who refuse the message. It's an either-or proposition. You receive the message or you refuse the message. And the keys open the door to those who receive the message. The keys lock the door to those who refuse the message. Excluded, rejected. The church is authorized to mediate and administrate God's saving work on earth. That's what we learn. And the ongoing administration of the keys is the sustaining Christ-centered living. Um, This isn't the only place that it appears. It appears several chapters later in Matthew 18, verse 18, when Jesus is talking about managing sin. He uses the same language. Matthew 18, verse 15 and on. But look at verse 19. Or sorry, verse 18. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's talking here about if brothers or sisters sin the deal, and how to deal with sin. And the church is responsible. This is how we know that it's not only Peter who received the keys of the kingdom. Because Jesus then spreads out the responsibility of the keys of kingdom to the brothers and sisters in Christ, to we the church. He says in verse 19, again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. The, the, uh, the, the responsibility of the keys has been now given not only to Peter, but given to the apostles and given to the church in the responsibility of the management of sin, the ongoing administration. And he talks about here what you bind or what you loose. Binding and loosing, a critical theological term. This is the membership work of the church. 
binding and loosing. Who's in, who's out. And the authority has been given to the church. It's been given to every redemptive community. We are those who ratify the will of God on earth. As it is in heaven, so it is on earth. In fact, the, um, the tense or the terminology here, when, when Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, it, it means will have been bound in heaven. What is already being bound in heaven is the responsibility of you to carry forth. Those who respond to Christ and believe in him have already been received by God and we ratify that here on earth through the church. Whatever is already uh, bound in heaven or because of refusal will also necessarily be bound by the church. The loosing is to loose from slavery. The binding is to remain bound in slavery to sin and self. That's, the, that's what the picture is here. This is a membership work of the church. Recognizing new Christians, disciplining those who rebel. Recognizing new Christians, disciplining those who rebel. That's the ongoing loosing and binding work of those who hold the keys to the kingdom. The entrance requirements are repentance, doing the will of the Father, listening to and keeping Jesus' teaching. It's the call to discipleship. And then there's the authority to banish those who persist in disobedience or to readmit those who repent because we're a redemptive community reflecting the heart of God. And we all need to know that Almighty God stands behind this role of the church. By whose authority do you admit and do you reject? I'll tell you whose authority. By the authority of Almighty God, the littlest, smallest church in some backwater village somewhere in the world has the keys of the kingdom as the authority to admit and the authority to refuse. By whose authority? By the authority of Almighty God, God stands behind every church that functions obediently according to his word in this matter. Now, the second point here is the church is called a gracious, meticulous, and mutual member accountability in the matter of sin. Let's understand something. We're not, we're not here like cowboys bringing people in, throwing as many people out as we can. That's not how this functions. If we were to throw out every single person who ever sinned, there wouldn't be anybody in the building this morning. It would be worse than it was last Sunday. There would be nobody here. That's not how it works. 1 John 1.8 says that anybody who says they have no sin, the truth is not in them. They're not, they're not, they're not truth tellers. We sin, and it says, but if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's, that's the ethos of scripture, the, the, the reality of coming into God's kingdom is sourced in forgiveness. The cross is all about forgiveness. None of us would have even been saved if we couldn't be forgiven of our sins. The cross, the emblem of the cross is the symbol of the forgiveness of our sins. And the church is a forgiving community. 
In fact, in the Matthew 18, 18 text, where it talks about dealing with sins among brothers and sisters, verse 15, if your brother sins, by the way, against you isn't in the earliest manuscripts. I think this is just a general idea. If you know that somebody's sinning, you ought to go to them and help them. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. I guess women never sin because it's only brother, go and show him his fault. Oh, no, you know, you, know, you know better than that. I know better than that. Well, anyway, I'll stop there. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. We're going to get to that in a few moments. I don't want to go all into this. But I want you to notice that the parable that Jesus uses right after this is the parable of the unmerciful, unforgiving servant. (laughs) The context here is pretty important. Our community, the community of Calvary Baptist Church is a forgiving community. A community that is to deal with sin and, and, pro, and provide opportunity for repentance of sin and, and get on with our lives. We are a repenting, confessing community for correction. And the goal is a mutual accountability. Galatians 6.1 says like if one of us has fallen into sin, sin uh, we fall into sin, those who are spiritual among us should come alongside and, and help that person get up off of the mat and get going again. That's who we are. That's what we do. It's about growth and health. We are a spiritual hospital for one another. When there's soul sickness among us, we run to each other and help each other. In James 5 uh, verse 18 or 16, it tells us that we are to confess our sins one to the other. Why? Because it's possible that the sickness that we're involved in or the weakness that we're feeling in our lives is a result of sin in our life. And we go to one another and confess our sins to one another. We pray for one another. We turn from our sin and seek healing from forgiveness from the Lord and go on with our lives getting spiritually healthy together. That's the community that we live in. That's how we recover. That's how we get strong in the Lord. But unfortunately, there is some sinning that, that moves to disqualification. It's not the ongoing sin that we have in, li- in our lives and we seek to eradicate it. We seek to get rid of it. Uh, regularly, we're doing that in our private lives. The sin pops up during the day. We say, oh, Lord God, forgive me for that. Forgive me for that thought. For- forgive me for that action. Forgive me for that attitude. Forgive me for that interaction I had with, with one of your precious Children, forgive me for that, O oh Lord. There's the other sins where p- people see it in our lives and we maybe been ignoring it and they confront us and we deal with it. But then there's some who are living in a sinful state and refusing to deal with it. This is what is dealt with, this is what is being referred to here by the loosing and the binding. And the church in this case is expected to exclude from her membership, from her fellowship, from her communion, those who stubbornly persist in practicing unregenerate behavior. People who are refusing uh, to, to walk in the ways of God. Not just a sin that creeps up on them. Not just a sin that, that they're dealing with and seeking help with but a sin that they harbor in their life and refuse to change even when confronted. And a community of faith is required 
as key holders of the kingdom. We are not just opening the door, we are swinging the door closed as well. And the vast majority of churches want nothing whatsoever to do with this. They love to open the door, but they don't want to swing the door closed. And brothers and sisters, we're not exercising the correct identity as Christ's church if we are not key holders that are obedient to the Lord in what that means. And so Jesus talks here about the, the different levels, or Jesus for one, and then Paul, Jesus talks about the different levels of sin. We've already talked about the, the if your brother sins, that's a Jesus' instruction on private sin. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. The idea here is nobody else knows about this sin. So keep it that way. We don't go out broadcasting each other's sins. If you know something about someone, you go to that person and, because you love them. You care about them. So you go and you show them. And, and it says, well, you know, they might, they might not listen to you. And if they won't listen to you, you get a, a couple of trusted brothers or sisters in the Lord. And you go to them with a couple of trusted uh, brothers or sisters in the Lord. And you, you bring witnesses to, to this and say, this is wrong. And we love you. If they won't listen to the two or three brothers or sisters of the Lord who come to them, then you're to go and finally tell it to the church. Now it, now it has to become public to the church. Now the, the weight of all of the people who love you descend upon you with grace and, and urgency and, and mercy and say, please stop this. This direction is taking your heart and stealing you away from God. It is leading you toward apostasy. Stop it. It says if this person will not stop, then you are to treat them as a tax collector, a pagan. Paul talks about once you get to that stage in 1 Corinthians 5. You might want to turn there in your Bibles. We need to deal with it quickly, but 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's instruction on public egregious sin. There's an immoral brother here who actually is having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. This is in the church. And the church, instead of being grieved and horrified about it, and confronting this individual, they're proud of it. They're arrogant about it. Hey, look what we can do. When you come to know Jesus, you can do just about anything you want to do because you're saved already. This is what you call cheap grace. God is so gracious. God is so merciful. God has saved you. He's not going to unsave you. So you can live any way you want to. Paul is going to make the point here and it's made throughout the scriptures that anybody who thinks like that isn't actually a believer. Because once you've been liberated from your sin, you never want to go back to living in sin again. It's distasteful for you. You never want to live that way. So Paul's instruction to a public egregious sin, he says, look, when, when you're gathered together, passing judgment, uh, and, and I've already passed judgment, he says down in verse 3, 
When you're assembled in verse 4, in the name of the Lord, I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan so that that sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Now, this is a responsibility of the assembled church, a responsibility of the key holder church. To hand this person over to Satan. What does that mean? It means expel them from the church, because you're going to see that in verse 13. Uh, Expel them from the church and cast them out into the environment of Satan so that they're no longer under the protective custody of the church community. Throw them out to the world controlled by Satan unrestrained to the evil forces of wickedness that will descend upon this person for the destruction of their flesh. Now that could mean premature death. In other words, before they go so far as to apostate themselves and be damned to hell, or it could mean for the destruction of the, of the wicked nature, their sinful desires... Until those contrasted against the heart full of the spirit, the, the sinful desires, until those sinful desires have been dealt with in the harshest of ways out in the community of Satan, so that that person will desperately want to repent and come back to the Lord. Because you see what the point is here at the end of verse 5? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. This is a rescue mission. Redemptive church discipline is a church rescue mission. Whereby the Lord gives one more dramatic opportunity for someone who's living like hell to come back to Jesus. And the keys entitle us, in fact, they obligate us, to readmit a person who repents and comes back to the Lord. Now, um, we, uh, because we're going to now transition to the Lord's table, I just want to make one more point to you about the discipline of our sinful lives, and the responsibilities of the keys of the kingdom. And that has to do with 1 Corinthians 11. And I want to point out in this text that Paul says, in the following directions, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. First place I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Then down verse 27, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone 
who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. This is the case where people are gathering at the Lord's table and two things are going on. There's, there's a disloyalty toward Christ and there's a disloyalty towards the people of God. If you read in context and you go back to 1 Corinthians 10, you will find out that many of them were participating in the parties, wild parties of demons and drunkenness in, in Corinth and then would come to the Lord's table on Sunday. And he says, this is a participation at the Lord's table. This is, a, this is a symbol of the gospel. This is a symbol of being rescued from your sinfulness. This is a symbol of the mercy of God in your life. This is a symbol of, of your re, uh, of, of recommitment to your vows that you made when you claimed to accept the message, were baptized publicly. You stated that you were loyal to the Lord. You were going to be loyal to his church. And you are gathering together and at the Lord's table, you are disloyal to Jesus, you are disloyal to the body of Christ. He says, I I need to warn you that you need to self-examine because if you continue to participate in the Lord's table in this manner of disloyalty to Jesus and disloyalty to his church, God is going to judge you. Some of you are going to get sick, some of you are going to be weak, and some of you are going to die. This is a serious warning. Do do we think for one second that God has lifted this out of the scriptures and it doesn't exist anymore? Do we think when we gather at the table of the Lord that he has waived this condition? Not in your life, beloved. And my appeal to us and my appeal to to myself, my appeal as we we transition to the Lord's table, we're going to go to the Lord's table right now. As we transition to the Lord's table, my appeal to all of us is we have a gracious and a merciful and an almighty, wonderful God who has rescued us from sinfulness so that we're no longer slaves to it and has brought us into his amazing kingdom and has called us to loyalty to the King of Kings who invites us to his dinner table and and requires of us to be loyal and faithful to one another and to love one another as Christ has loved us. He has called us to this. And when we gather at this table, we are endorsing that message. We are claiming to authenticate that message in our lives. We are claiming that we are living that message in our lives. And if you are claiming that you are living that message in your life, but you are not living that message in your life, the warning of this text is, that's why some of you are weak, that's why some of you are sick, and that's why some of you are dying or will die. Now, don't for a second turn and think that the people we prayed for who were sick, the people who are weak, or the people who have died, died or were weak or sick because they came to the table of the Lord wrong. That would be the same mistake the disciples made when they encountered a blind man. Who sinned, him or his parents? Nobody, Jesus, not, not, neither of those, Jesus, said, but for me to, to, to uh, bring glory to myself. So don't look around. This is about self-examination. It says a man or a woman ought to examine themselves. Don't look around at anybody else this morning. This is about you and an invitation to the table of the King of Kings. You either are coming to it in a worthy manner or an unworthy manner. I 
implore you, do not come to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. I'm going to have a few more things to say about it, and then we're going to participate in the elements. And I'm calling on you at home the same way. This message is for all who are hearing. Father, thank you for your grace to us, but you have called us to a sober responsibility to be key holders of the kingdom of heaven. An awesome responsibility. And with responsibility, or with authority and with, uh, with responsibility comes uh, our responsibility to carry forth what you call us to do. And so I pray, oh Father, that you would um, visit us powerfully in these moments of application in our lives. As we illustrate the truth of the gospel, the very keys to the kingdom themselves, as we participate at the Lord's table, I pray, oh God, that you will show us your truth for Jesus' sake. Amen.